This is the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 2, Episode 2, a look into the tablet theory on the authorship of Genesis. Last week, I devoted considerable time to the documentary hypothesis concerning the authorship of the Pentateuch. If you missed it, you really should go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm doing a similar review of what is generally referred to as the tablet theory as the source of Genesis. So let's get started. The tablet theory proposes that portions of Genesis were originally written on clay tablets by men who personally experienced the events described. The theory indicates that the tablets were then later compiled by Moses. Since the original writers were said to have been eyewitnesses, their accounts would most likely be historically accurate. The first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, are referred to as what is called the Books of Law, the Torah, the Pentateuch, or the Books of Moses. Those last four books have many verses that seem to attribute them directly to Moses. But, he's not even mentioned anywhere in the book of Genesis. This should not come as a surprise if you believe those books simply present the history of the world through that point, in a timeline style. But there will be more on Genesis in a minute. First a little stage setting, before the tablet theory itself. In what is present-day Iraq, sit many ancient villages, towns, and cities. One such town is what was once the town of Gasur, which is thought to have been founded during the Akkadian Empire, in the late 3rd millennium BC. There will be a deeper dive on the Akkadians in a few weeks. Gasur was located on the Tigris River, Around 1400 BC, the Hurrians absorbed the town and renamed it Nuzi. The history of the site during the intervening period is less clear, though the presence of a few clay tablets from Old Assyria indicate that trade with nearby Assur was taking place. After the fall of the Hurrian kingdom of Mentani to the Hittites, Nuzi fell to the Assyrians and declined. Now fast forward a few thousand years. Tablets from Yorgan Tepe the modern name for Nuzi began surfacing as far back as 1896. The first serious archaeological efforts to uncover these tablets was begun in 1925 by Gertrude Bell, an English archaeologist among many other things. As an aside, if you have not already, please listen to the podcast called Stuff You Missed in History Class concerning her adventures. She lived a very interesting life. Anyway, Bell noticed clay tablets appearing in the markets of Baghdad. Soon thereafter, an archaeological dig was organized under the auspices of the Iraq Museum and the American Schools of Oriental Research. Later, Harvard University and the Fogg Art Museum became involved. Excavations were conducted through 1931. Hundreds of tablets were uncovered and the finds were published in a series of volumes. The common writing media of the era were raw clay tablets impressed by a wedge-shaped stylist. The tablets were facilitated by the exceptionally fine clay found in the area, which was easy to impress, with the distinctive cuneiform, meaning cone-shaped characters. Inscriptions in stone were also common, but the clay tablets, oven-baked to great hardness, were versatile and durable. I'll post a photo of a cuneiform tablet on the podcast Facebook page. To date, around 5,000 tablets have been found. Most are held at the Oriental Institute in Chicago the Harvard Semitic Museum, and the Iraq Museum in Baghdad. Many are simply legal and business documents, and about 25% concern the business transactions of a single family. 
The vast majority of finds are from the Hurrian period during the second millennium BC, with the remainder dating back to the town's founding during the Akkadian Empire before 2000 BC. Remembering back to my last episode, it had been previously thought that writing did not originate until about 1000 BC. So much for that theory. The most well-known tablet is the so-called Nuzi map, which is currently the oldest known map ever discovered. Up to this date, it is not understood what exactly the Nuzi map shows, even though the majority of the tablet was recovered. This map probably originated in the Gasor period, as it predates the invasion of the city of Gasor by the Hurrians, who renamed it Nuzi. The cache of economic and business documents among which the map was found date to the Old Akkadian period of around 2360 to 2180 BC. At the time, Gasor was a thriving commercial center, and the texts reveal a vibrant business community. It has been speculated that the tablet might be a record of land holdings, or a road map. The tablet, which is approximately two and a half inches square, is inscribed only on one side. It shows the city of Maskandur Ebla in the lower left corner, and a canal or river in two mountain ranges. I guess maybe it was their version of a pocket-sized GPS. Overall, the discovery of the tablets show that the culture of ancient Mesopotamia was far more advanced than previously considered. Further, the tablets help demonstrate that writing was practiced before 3000 BC, a thousand or more years before Abraham. Vast libraries of clay tablets were also discovered at Ur, Nippur, and other sites. Stories of the creation and of a universal flood, which paralleled the Genesis accounts, were found to be in widespread distribution. Also, the Code of Hammurabi, from roughly the time of Abraham, was found to contain many of the laws by which Abraham governed his actions. Now to the tablet theory of Genesis. The tablet theory, sometimes called the Wiseman Hypothesis, is a theory of the authorship and composition of the book of Genesis. It suggests that Moses compiled Genesis from tablets handed down through Abraham and the other patriarchs. Originally advocated by Percy Wiseman in his book, New Discoveries in Babylonia about Genesis, first published in 1936 and republished by Wiseman's son, Donald Wiseman, in the book titled Ancient Records and the Structure of Genesis, A Case for Literary Unity, in 1985. The theory received some support from Roland Harrison, a Canadian Old Testament scholar, but otherwise remained unaccepted in academic circles. But back to Wiseman. Air Commodore Percy Wiseman, a British military officer during his military service, visited many active archaeological sites in the Middle East. While doing so, he found that the ancient narrative tablets usually ended in colophones. Okay, so what is a colophone? It's merely a word that means an identifying mark used by a printer or a publisher. In modern printing, they are usually before the table of contents and are essentially the trademarked logo of the publisher. You've seen them, you probably just didn't know that a word existed to describe what they were. These colophones on the ancient tablets had a very specific format, consisting of three parts. First, the phrase. This has been the history, book, genealogy of, and then fill in the blank. Next, the name of the person who wrote or owned the tablet. And third, a date such as in the year of the great earthquake, or in the third year of king fill in the blank. If multiple tablets were involved, there were also catch lines to connect a tablet to the next in the sequence. 
many of these old records related to family histories and origins, which were evidently highly important to those ancient people. Wiseman noticed the similarity of many of these to the sections of the book of Genesis. Wiseman noted that there are 11 phrases in Genesis which have the same colophon format, which have long been identified as the, and this is a Hebrew word, toldoth passages. Wiseman theorized that these apparent colophons indicated that Genesis had originally been a collection of narrative clay tablets written in cuneiform, like the ancient tablets he had seen. His theory went on to propose that Moses had edited the tablets into a single document, possibly hand-printed onto a scroll. His theory is in contrast with the traditional view that Moses wrote Genesis entirely on his own without any outside sources, except, of course, the Word of God. It was also in opposition to the documentary hypothesis that Genesis was compiled by much later and unknown editors. Once he had linked the Toldoth in Genesis to the ancient colophons, another point became apparent. Just as the colophons came at the end of the narratives, so too the Toldoths may come at the end of the narratives. Thus, the first of these Toldoth passages, in Genesis chapter 2 verse 4, refers to the preceding creation account beginning in Genesis 1, rather than being the introduction to the succeeding account. This was in contrast with the traditional understanding that since nearly all the Toldoths are immediately followed by a list of descendants of the person named in the Toldoth, then the Toldoths were thought to be the beginning of sections in Genesis. This counterproposal has led to serious questions, because in several cases they just don't seem to fit. For example, in Genesis chapter 37, verse 2 begins, These are the generations of Jacob. But from that spot on, the text describes Joseph and his brothers, and almost nothing about Jacob, who was the central character in the previous section. The identification statement of each document, Wiseman noted, was placed at the end of the text, not, as is currently practiced, at the beginning. Similarly, the famous Code of Hammurabi closes with the statement, The righteous laws which Hammurabi, the wise king, has established. End quote. With the discovery of the Nuzi tablets, it is now known that clay tablets were commonly used, at least as far back as what is thought to have been Abraham's time. Therefore, clay is a possible material for the early biblical tablets. However, when Moses and the Israelites left Egypt, in possibly the mid-1400s BC, according to Exodus chapter 24, verse 12, God inscribed the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone on Mount Sinai. That's also a possible material for the Genesis tablets. Most of our preserved information from early Egypt is carved in stone, but stone is heavier and harder to carve than clay. And when you're wandering around the deserts of the Middle East for 40 years, it pays to pack lightly, and stone isn't terribly light. Also, there's an ancient Jewish tradition that the Torah should always be written upon leather, or more specifically, calf or sheepskin. It is thought that while wandering, the Israelites had many sheep, so sheepskin would have been readily available. In the first five books of the Bible, traditionally known as the books of Moses, he is generally thought of as the author of the last four. No historical source documents that Moses actually composed and wrote Genesis, but it is widely believed that he compiled the book from other sources. This does not mean that Moses did not have access to the patriarchal records preserved by being written on clay tablets or sheepskin, 
and handed down from father to son along the line of Adam to Seth to Noah to Shem to Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Moses, with many others in between. In fact, there are 11 verses in Genesis which read, These are the generations of fill in the blank. The Hebrew word toldot can also mean origin or record of the origins. One note, in Genesis, these statements all come after the events they describe, and the events recorded all took place before the death of the individual so named. Therefore, they may be subscripts, or closing signatures, or even colophones. If this is so, the most likely explanation of them is that Adam, Noah, Shem, and the others each wrote down an account of the events which occurred in his respective lifetime, and Moses selected and compiled them, along with his own comments, into the book we now know as Genesis. Well, at least that's Wiseman's theory. Critics of this theory pointed out that the absence of genealogies with the formula and portions of the text demonstrate that the text has been redacted, meaning that the missing passages must have been deleted or lost, but their introductions preserved. Of course, that would be an odd situation. Wiseman countered that such inconsistencies are due to a basic misunderstanding of ancient writing practices. To him, the various portions of Genesis were recorded close to the time in which the events took place, perhaps by eyewitnesses. Logically, if Adam knew the events of creation that occurred from the first through six days, they must have been told to him by God, as Adam was not made until day six, so he could have known them only if God had told him. This logic is reinforced by the words, in the New Revised Standard Version, These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. The details of day 7, the day of rest, are included before this in Genesis chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, thereby completing the full record of the creation, before the closing signature appears. After that statement, and through chapter 5, verse 1, we are told the story of Adam, his wife Eve, and their sons. This story reads very much like a personal account of which Adam knew, saw, and experienced concerning the Garden of Eden and the creation of Eve, their rebellion against God, up until the deeds of their descendants, even though it is written from a third-person perspective. This section ends with the words, This is the book of the generations of Adam. According to Wiseman, the account of creation was not, then, demythologized by later Hebrew or Proto-Hebrew scribes. Instead, the original story found in Hebrew scripture was borrowed and potentially corrupted, then expanded by Mesopotamian polytheists. Genesis chapters 12 through 50 were very clearly written as historical narratives, as they described the lives of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and his twelve sons, who were the ancestral heads of the twelve tribes of Israel. The Jewish people from the earliest biblical times to the present day have traditionally regarded this portion of Genesis as the true record of their history. The only known worshiper of God in his day, Noah, is assumed by Wiseman to have preserved the pre-flood text for posterity. In turn, Abraham, a monotheist among polytheists and nature worshippers, is assumed to have taken unadulterated copies with him to Canaan. Jacob is then theorized to have taken these, along with family histories recorded while in Canaan, to Egypt. The history of Joseph is assumed to have been written in Egypt, perhaps on papyrus which was readily available in that time and place. 
Wiseman also theorized that at the same time, the land of Canaan, due to trade, was in regular contact with both Mesopotamia and Egypt. Mesopotamian cuneiform, notably the Akkadian language, could be interpreted in Egypt as testified by the Armana letters dated around 1400 to 1353 BC, sent from Canaan. These clay tablets were found in Upper Egypt, meaning Southern Egypt, well distanced from Canaan. They were discovered in the late 19th century and were written, of course, in Akkadian. From these, it is easy to see that the eventual translation of the cuneiform tablets of Genesis would not have been an issue. The composition of Genesis would have been quite simply a matter of linking the separate accounts to form a single narrative. According to Wiseman, this was done by Moses in the wilderness, with some minor editing, such as Moses assigning to him what would have been modern place names. Roland Harrison, a Canadian Old Testament scholar, wrote, and this is a quote, His approach, which had the distinct advantage of relating the ancient Mesopotamian sources underlying Genesis to an authentic Mesopotamian life situation, unlike the attempts of the Graf Wellhausen school, and showed that the methods of writing and compilation employed in Genesis were in essential harmony with the processes current among the scribes of ancient Babylonia. End quote. As a reminder, the Graf Wellhausen school is the JEDP theory of the previous episode. Harrison stated that Wiseman's theory is disregarded by scholars who follow the documentary hypothesis since the primary basis of the documentary hypothesis is that the Pentateuch is a work composed by unknown authors and authors who lived well after Moses. He further stated that this methodology causes these scholars to overlook valuable information, such as from archaeology and knowledge of literary conventions in the ancient Near East that helped to explain the biblical text. Donald Wiseman, Percy's son, and a professor of Assyriology or the study of ancient Assyria, wrote the foreword to the revised edition of his father's book. The original was published in 1936, and Donald Weissman's revision in 1985. In this revision, it was noted that since the first had been written, many more colophons had been discovered among Babylonian cuneiform text. Texts from Syria and Mesopotamia showed stability in the tradition of scribal education and literary practices for more than two millennia specifically the practice of giving fixed and dated points. He particularly valued the implication of this theory for the early use of writing. Getting back to the Elder Wiseman, and no, not the one from the Gospels. For Genesis, there were probably eleven tablets. The first tablet covered the first and part of the second chapters of Genesis, and was either written or dictated by God himself. The second tablet covered chapters 2 through the first verse of chapter 5, and was written by Adam. The third tablet, for chapters 5 and a portion of 6, was written by Noah. The fourth tablet, for chapters 6 through the first verse of chapter 10, was written by Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The fifth tablet, covering chapters 10 and a portion of 11, was written by Shem. The sixth tablet, covering a portion of the 11th chapter, was written by Terah. The seventh tablet, covering chapters 11 through a portion of chapter 25, was written by Isaac. The eighth tablet, covering a portion of chapter 25, was written by Ishmael and Isaac. The ninth tablet, written by Jacob, covers the remainder of chapter 25 and runs through the beginning of chapter 37. The tenth tablet, written by Esau and Jacob, covers a portion of chapter 36. And finally, the eleventh tablet, covering Genesis chapter 37 through the beginning of Exodus 1, was written by Jacob's twelve sons. When I was first writing this episode, 
I intended to cover each tablet in depth, but to do the matter justice would have added another 20 or more minutes to the podcast, putting the length well outside the target of 25 minutes total. Not to mention that there is a great deal of necessary detail, which is quite frankly not my intent in podcasting. My objective, as I've stated many times, is to talk you through how the church's history collides with world history. The detail of the proposed structure of these theorized tablets is really neither part of church history nor world history. If you are interested, just Google Wiseman Tablet Theory and you will find what you desire. If you want me to point you in a more precise direction, simply email the address at the end of the podcast and I'll forward a list of places to find more information. But back to the theory. In a similar vein, critics do not hesitate in pointing out the flaws within Wiseman's theory. I'm not going to dissect each one, but instead I will talk you through a single example. Rest assured that the other criticisms are built upon the same foundation. Critics point out the observation that in every occurrence of the phrase Shem, Helm, and Japheth, it seems perfectly in context, and in doing so, works against its identification as a recurring tablet marker. Remember, these are markers that link one clay tablet to the next. It has been suggested that Wiseman's hypothetical tablet markers are more perceived than real. Or, maybe any occurrences of the tablet marker, which seemed out of context, were deleted by a later editor. This is possible if the significance of such markers were understood. But, in chapter 7, verse 13, and chapter 10, verse 1, the phrase occurs in conjunction with the sons of Noah, and seems redundant, and further complicates the issue. Unless, of course, there were other men by the same name. Also, the attribution of most of Noah's story to his sons, presumed to be in the fourth tablet, seems odd, unless Noah wrote the tablet for his sons and in their name. Last, Helm's own admission of his indiscretion and cursing in chapter 9, verse 20 through 27 seems unlikely. My thought on this last part, about Helm's admission, is that it paralleled to what we see in the New Testament at the time of the crucifixion. Why would Peter admit that he denied Jesus three times? Or that no one waited outside the tomb for Jesus to rise? Unless, of course, these actors were flawed humans and their actions, as recounted, were true. Finally, to critics of the tablet theory, Wiseman never properly deals with certain pieces of history that were not witnessed by the theorized writer, such as the Tower in Babel in chapter 11 verses 1 through 9. The geographic area of Babel was presented in the previous chapter as having been populated by the descendants of Nimrod, the son of Cush. These are presented as a historical account, but no attribution is made. Not to forget that whatever was written before Babel, as the story goes, would have been indecipherable afterwards. Victor Hamilton, a North American biblical scholar, states that Wiseman's hypothesis was the first rigorous attempt to explain the introductory colophones. But Hamilton also identifies several problems with the theory. First, in quoting, In five instances where the formula precedes the genealogy, it is difficult to not include the colophone with what follows. End quote. Next, the approach requires the doubtful explanation that Ishmael was partially responsible for the writing of the history of Abraham, Isaac for Ishmael's history, Esau for Jacob's history, and Jacob for Esau's history. The last problem Hamilton identifies is that Genesis is written as a narrative, not as a biography, as the theory would suggest. Therefore, Wiseman's theory has largely been dismissed by both higher critics and conservative traditionalists. 
even in this short summary of Wiseman's theory, it is somewhat clear that there are attributes along with difficulties, even obvious inconsistencies, when compared to other theories. But, overall, the origin of Genesis's writing is probably more complex than any one theory can account for. Having said that, the hypothesis has major strengths. Unlike the documentary theory, it is based upon a knowledge of ancient methods of writing. In this way, the theory is somewhat objective, while the documentary theory is based upon a subjective evaluation of the text. The tablet theory takes Genesis virtually as is, without extensive modifications to fit its presumptions. But at the same time, it does not make the broad assumption, based on tradition, that the book was dictated to Moses by God. The theory also explains the repetitions found in the text, such as the dual genealogies of Esau in Genesis 36. All of the original tablets, assuming they ever existed, have been long and completely lost, so we don't know anything about what they were like. For emphasis, that bears repeating. The clay tablets of Wiseman's theory have never been found. He is using the structure of the books and comparing them to other writings from the region and era to speculate that they did exist at one time. All of his theory is from textual evidence, not from physical remains. So, almost by definition, his theory can never really be proven, and perhaps will always remain just a theory. Overall, the truth is not subject to vote, and we will probably never in our lives, at least, know the origins of Genesis without any doubt. So, there is definitely space for this theory along with the others. So that's the episode for this week. Join me next week when I'll recount the creation story, or perhaps stories, as presented in the book of Genesis. I'll also look into various creation stories from elsewhere in the world and attempt to tie them all together. As I mentioned last week, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. Comments, questions, and essentially any correspondence can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. You can also find the Facebook page by searching the term Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.